Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey, frontline friends, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, I'll let you know that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after years working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out there on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real life behind the scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. I want to welcome you back as we move into week two of our series on daring leadership and working at empowering you with tools in an effort to cultivate a new generation of leaders who can work at changing our very broken systems from the inside out. Now, last week, I spent time talking about the brokenness of the system and the many challenges we face in making real, meaningful change to systems that are large, complex, and deeply entrenched. I also shared about my own experiences witnessing a different way of being in an organizational setting and the difference this makes in supporting sustainability. We did a bit of an overview last week of some of the broad concepts that have been shown by research to make a real and tangible difference for organizations who work to implement these pieces. And this week, we're starting to dig a bit deeper into the nitty gritty of what it means to engage in daring leadership. The concepts we're talking about in this series are taken from the incredible work of Brene Brown and her book, Dare to Lead. I'll continue to link to this book as well as some of her other books and resources in the show notes throughout the series. And for those genuinely interested in being change makers, I would strongly encourage you to snag the book and follow along as we walk through the concepts here and applications within frontline workplaces and bureaucratic systems. In last week's episode, I summarized some of the defining aspects identified by Brene's research of daring leadership, and we talked about four skill sets that she says can be taught, observed, and measured. That means that they're tangible and applicable pieces that we can learn, develop, and hone to make use of. These skill sets are shown in the research to be foundational requirements for courage. Now, what does courage have to do with leadership? Well, let's remember that according to her research, Brene Brown defines leadership as anyone who takes responsibility for finding the potential in people and processes and who has the courage to develop that potential. What we're saying right off the hop is that leadership is not just bossing people around. It's not simply making decisions or managing people. To qualify as true leadership, there needs to be an intentional effort directed at seeing people, seeing their potential and working alongside them to develop that potential, which can only happen well when we invest in showing up courageously ourselves with a willingness to 
rumble with vulnerability, to live into our values, to brave trust, and to learn to rise. These are the four skill sets that make up courage as it relates to daring leadership. And over the coming weeks, we're going to break down each and every one. Today, we're going to start with what it means to rumble with vulnerability. Now, if you're new to Brittany Brown's work, you should know that one of the pieces that has significantly informed her work and the language she uses is a quote by Theodore Roosevelt during a speech given in 1910, where he said this, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement? And who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly? So that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. This speech by Theodore Roosevelt is echoed repeatedly in Bernie's work because it emphasizes that the credit belongs to those who risk to be in the game, not just the spectators and criticizers of it. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. Brene talks often about the critics, those in what she calls the cheap seats, who like to talk tough but aren't willing to step into the ring, aren't willing to risk of themselves. But of those who are willing to step in, who are willing to show up and get beat up and dirty, she talks about these as the folks who really know what it means to live. It means risking, being vulnerable, it's uncomfortable, but without it, we can't really know the triumph of victory. And even if it doesn't go as hoped, at least we know of ourselves that we weren't in the cheap seats. We were willing to dare greatly. The quote by Theodore Roosevelt highlights this piece about vulnerability, which is at the core of much of Brene Brown's research and work over the course of her career, long before organizational level dynamics were a part of what she was considering. She defines vulnerability as the emotion that we experience during times of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. One of the greatest misconceptions about the concept of vulnerability is that being vulnerable is equal to weakness. When you hear the word vulnerable, what comes to mind for you? For a lot of people, it feels immensely uncomfortable to even sit with the word. Meanwhile, I want you to think for a moment. Think of a time or a handful of times in your life where you have had to show courage or be brave. Think about what it was like to be in those moments. You got it? 
Is there a single one of those moments of being brave or courageous where you weren't feeling vulnerability within the uncertainty, risk, and or emotional exposure of these courage demanding experiences? I bet you can't. I bet you can't think of one single experience where courage was required that didn't also involve vulnerability. They invariably co-occur without fail. And if courage means strength, then invariably vulnerability must also. Evidence from the research has reflected this time and time again. Vulnerability is not weakness. It is inherently tied to experiences where we showed strength, determination, courage, bravery. You cannot have one without the other. Engaging vulnerably with ourselves and with others takes strength and courage to step out from behind the masks and the armor that we wear to be seen, heard, and known. We risk the possibility that others might not care for what they see, hear, or know of us. But it is also the blissful space where we have the opportunity to experience genuine connection. Now, I mentioned last time that vulnerability is not the same thing as overdisclosure. Sometimes we can get that twisted. Vulnerability acts closely alongside boundaries. What's more vulnerable than outlining your boundaries and limits, really? Vulnerability is not just spewing our life stories and emotional baggage all over other people. That'd be crazy business. Vulnerability is about opening up spaces within ourselves to be real and curious about how we're doing, what we're feeling, what our needs are, where our limits are, what we're struggling with. And then it moves to open up spaces to have these pieces alongside others. If you remember back a few weeks ago when we had ICU nurse Courtney Jewell on the show discussing processing the pandemic, she shared about this exact piece. She shared that when she started in the work 12 years ago, no one talked about mental health for nurses and that she told stories in her own mind about how it must be about her that she couldn't manage the work without being impacted by anxiety. Somehow it was about her deficits. But now she shares more openly with others in her workplace about where she struggles and what she does to support herself so that newer nurses know that this is normal and that they have power to do something meaningful about it rather than suffering in silence, believing that their struggles are an indication of their own inability to hack it. This is vulnerability, opening up space for real, honest conversations, both with ourselves and with others. Okay, so what does it mean to rumble with vulnerability? Vulnerability within ourselves can be a rumble of its own kind. And when we engage vulnerability with others, we step into a new kind of rumble that brings up that person or those people's vulnerability baggage as well. I love that Brene uses the language of rumbling. It's not a fight, but it's not not a fight. It's the uncomfortable place that we're intentionally choosing to interact in, in an effort to get something meaningful. Rumbling with vulnerability really just means that we're interacting with this uncomfortable space, that we're not taking the easy way out and choosing the cheap seats, 
but that we're looking honestly at our own stuff and inviting interactions with others that are open and willing to touch on things that can be uncomfortable, but are also very meaningful. When we think about doing vulnerability with others, particularly in a workplace setting, I think we get uncomfortable with the idea of conflict and rocking the boat. We can be concerned about hurting someone else's feelings, causing upset, or ruffling feathers within the dynamics of the workplace. So we'll notice things but not say anything, or we'll talk to someone else about it instead of to the person we should be addressing it with. The challenge is that this doesn't solve problems or allow for more effective processes going forward. And it contributes to a culture that says, we're not willing to risk for one another because we're not willing to risk with one another. This can show up between coworkers as well as between management and staff. Not speaking directly and allowing vulnerability with one another tends to create an environment filled with resentment, disappointment, and eventual hostility. Over time, when we fail to address things vulnerably together, the dysfunction becomes palpable and the impact erodes trust and confidence for everyone involved. The research has clearly shown that vulnerability is a requirement for healthful workplaces because, quote, clear is kind, unclear is unkind. Here's the thing, we can be clear with folks in our lives about an issue without being mean or degrading or bullying. Often being clear allows us to avoid these pieces because it doesn't leave time for awkward silences and growing resentment to build to a place where we do act out of our own character. It saves everyone the headache of the buildup and it allows everyone a greater chance at success to move forward while collectively working at meeting expectations. It gives space to check assumptions, to reduce guessing, to clarify needs, goals, and directions. And it creates a culture that says, this is what we do. We talk about this shit and work together, rumble together to figure it out so that we all benefit. We're not afraid of the discomfort because we value each other and we trust the process. Okay, as I say this, I am very aware that I am going to get a zillion emails and social media messages letting me know that this is not something you can do in your workplace because of fill in the blank. And I get it, you're in a system that's broken. There's only so much you can do to patch up the gaping holes all by yourself. And stepping into some situations vulnerably is likely to end badly for you. I hear you. Let me clarify that this is going to have to happen in some baby steps. And in different organizations, this might look a little different. I had the gift of literally creating an organization that was made to reflect these values and practices from the get-go. Other organizations recognize the need for a change and invite Brene Brown herself to come and train their entire management team on how to do this better. I know of other organizations that did the Dare to Lead book as a management training and worked to implement the tools collectively. All of those are best case scenarios and not likely to be representative of how this might roll out on the front lines. You may have to be cautious about which rings to jump into and which ones to spectate because you may have to mitigate your risk a bit to have a bigger impact on the system over the long haul. This is likely to be a long game, 
making small inroads along the way. Start in the spaces where you have opportunities to show others a better way. The spaces where it's an opportunity to create a culture within a culture. I know of a couple of groups that meet from certain workplaces who've been listening to this podcast and discussing applications together, kind of like a book club. I know a lot of you are part of WhatsApp messaging groups where you connect outside of work or you grab lunch together or hang out outside of work or whatever. Start in these spaces, cultivating a culture that is more in alignment with how you wish the organization at large would operate. Little bits at a time grow that influence. Shine a light on the ways that you engage that allow others to think, wow, that was really different and I liked it. I wish we were like that around here all the time. This is how we make a movement, friends, by equipping ourselves, working collaboratively, and rumbling with a focus on the small wins that add up over time. That said, there is value in acknowledging the brokenness of the systems we're in. Acknowledging this lets us recognize that we have been trained up in a system that has taught us to armor up, to protect ourselves at all cost, and to fear being seen. This is true both within our broader culture as well as within workplace cultures. We are trained in carving meticulous masks for ourselves to wear that allow us to camouflage and blend in within environments where we fear that being seen for real is too risky. Brene talks in a lot of her work about the armory. She identifies the armory is cultivated so early in our lives in an effort to self-protect our hearts that feel too fragile to be shared. Meanwhile, her research has also identified time and time again that those who experience the greatest fullness in life and connection to themselves and others are those who live wholeheartedly, i.e. those who work at taking off the armor in an effort to let their hearts be seen, heard, known, and valued, and to genuinely offer the same to others. In Dare to Lead, she says this, Rather than protecting and hiding our heart behind bulletproof glass, wholeheartedness is about integration. It's integrating our thinking, feeling, and behavior. It's putting down the armor and bringing forth all of the scraggly, misshapen pieces of our history and folding in all of the different roles that when falsely separated, keep us feeling exhausted and torn to make a complex, messy, awesome, whole person. In so many spaces of our lives, we are rewarded for the armor, for being high-functioning, perfectionistic, able to compartmentalize or keep cool under pressure. It makes it hard to stop being these things. But these are also some of the pieces that contribute over time to burnout because we can't sustain these masks while starving the heart of ourselves that we have clamped inside like Leonardo DiCaprio's character in The Man in the Iron Mask. So many of the skills we have talked about in an effort to reduce burnout are skills that are intended to shine a light on the heart of you to allow it air to breathe and sustenance to keep you anchored and going. The armory, while it has served you in some ways, keeps you stuck in many others. And we need to see this tension 
Because if we don't have conscious awareness of this piece and engage it with intentionality, it will run us and burnout is more likely to come as a swift kick in the pants. In her book, Brene outlines some key differences between armored leadership and daring leadership. And I'll link to a version of this I found online in the show notes. I really encourage you to take a look and notice the areas you would benefit from growing in as a leader in influencing those within your sphere, no matter how big or small that may seem at the present moment. Brene says that ultimately, if shame and blame is our management style, or if it's a pervasive cultural norm, we can't ask people to be vulnerable or brave. Shame can only rise to a certain level before people have to armor up and sometimes disengage to stay safe. This is what we're often working in, cultures grounded in shame that ensure the need to armor up. But then they lose people's abilities to be brave, creative, innovative, and engaged. This is how we lose good people and burn them out. And this is why the systems remain so broken, because we lose the good ones, or we lose out on the goodness of the good ones who stay in but have to shrink into the armor day after day just to exist in these spaces. We need to know that shame is the fear of disconnection. Brene's work covers this both on a personal and an organizational cultural level. She says that shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. It says that you aren't good enough, that you're an imposter just playing like you fit but fearing that you'll be found out. According to her research, shame tends to show up in organizations in some more and less innocuous ways, including perfectionism, favoritism, gossiping, back-channeling, comparison, self-worth tied to productivity, harassment, discrimination, power over, bullying, blaming, teasing, and cover-ups. Do any of these sound familiar? We live and work in systems and cultures that use shame to manage people. We need to see this, notice it when it's happening, and make intentional choices around how we are going to interact with it. Shame is a social interaction. It happens between people. It's the breeding ground, but it's also the healing ground. See, the research shows that shame is reduced and reversed by empathy. Brene talks in her research about skills for shame resilience, which she defines as the ability to practice authenticity when we experience shame, to move through the experience without sacrificing our values, and to come out the other side of the shame experience with more courage, compassion, and connection than we had going into it. Ultimately, shame resilience is about moving from shame to empathy, the real antidote to shame. She follows this by speaking to self-compassion and says, because shame is a social concept, it happens between people, it also heals best between people. A social wound needs a social bomb, and empathy is that bomb. Self-compassion is key because when we're able to be gentle with ourselves in the midst of shame, we're more likely to reach out, connect, and experience empathy. Are you hearing this? 
Self-compassion, which grows out of caring for ourselves well and valuing ourselves, is a key to being able to seek support when we feel shame and receive empathy to heal shame experiences. This allows us to engage in ways that manage the armory and permit for wholeheartedness. Do you see how so many of the skills we've been talking about over the course of the podcast fit together into a bigger puzzle? Resilient skills, mindfulness, self-care, the ability to check in with ourselves and process, it all matters as we work at engaging our work and our lives from a place that is grounded in wholeheartedness and seeks to allow our hearts to have a place in the craziness of it all without always having to be sheltered behind a thousand layers of bulletproof glass. We want to feel connected to our families, to laugh genuinely with our friends, to be present on holidays, to feel calm sitting in the sunshine. And we want this for those we work with, who we know also sacrifice so much of themselves to show up day after day to care about people who need you and the skills you bring. They are good wants, and you should be able to have a good chunk of them. But it's so much harder within systems that demand the armor, that discount valuing those of you working so hard to give so much. And it's really hard to take the armor off when you know you just have to put it on again tomorrow. And it changes us. Slowly but surely, we have a harder and harder time knowing the difference between the armor, the masks, and who we are on the inside. We have to change it, little bits at a time. I know we're tackling big pieces here. Taking on the system is no small feat. As we navigate this, I'm going to encourage you to look for the small wins. Use some of these skills in the spaces where you have a sphere of influence. Gradually work at cultivating a culture. When people get a taste of this kind of culture, they will chase after it and want to learn how to walk it with you. That's been my experience. As I mentioned, I know that several people have reached out to share with me about how they are connecting as groups of staff or in consultation groups to check in together, as well as process and workout applications for the podcast topics week to week into their own workplaces and work-related experiences. You may find it helpful to do something like this, your own little rebel alliance within the system, making change from the inside out. If you do, I would love to hear about it. Generally, I love hearing from you, and you can always find my email and social media contact info in the show notes. I value so much those of you who follow me on social media, who like, comment, and share with those you care about, and I appreciate those who have subscribed to the podcast and to our weekly email list. We will continue working at developing leadership skills for a killer new generation of connected, wholehearted leaders. Join me again next week as we continue this series. And until next time, stay safe.